if you're ages four through third grade. <laughs> um, if you want to, you can go with Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Friesen for Children's Chapel. Um, you can open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. We're looking at that passage again. Um, actually, just a few verses from it, which are also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, we'll look at Acts 17, verses 16 and 17. And last week, we looked at the whole passage, uh, a few paragraphs of Acts chapter 17. And we thought about how Paul engaged with the Athenians, how it was that he did evangelism there. So we talked about the fact that good evangelism, as demonstrated by Paul, can be as simple as just two things, right? Discovering what the idols of a person or a group are, um, those things that replace God in their lives, and then secondly, talking about Jesus in a way that exposes and counters those uh, idols, those false gods. Good evangelism is sharing the gospel in a way that shows false gods to be making empty promises uh, and that sets forth the one true God in his rightful place as our maker and our judge and our uh, savior and our friend and our only hope. Uh, So we've considered the fundamentals of how to share the gospel, and this morning I want to think about um, why we share the gospel, why we do evangelism. What are our motives as we share the gospel uh, with the people in our lives? So let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Lord, we come to your word. We're thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you've sent your son Jesus into the world to uh, turn the world upside down. And we ask that uh, now you would once again turn our hearts upside down uh, by your spirit as we come to your word. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So evangelism is, uh, is just like any other um, behavior or action in the Christian life. Uh, there are motives behind it, right? Certain reasons why we do it. And when good motives produce a good behavior, that's good. Uh, when, when bad motives drive that same good behavior, then you've got a problem, right? There's some kind of disconnect between what's inside you and what's on the outside. Um, our aim in every part of our lives should be increasingly that our motives and our behaviors would uh, sync up, that, that what's happening on the inside would match what's happening on the outside. Unfortunately, our default mode is that bad motives usually drive our apparently or externally good behavior. Um, so if you've been around the church for any time, you've probably seen this dynamic at work. We want people to think well of us. So we polish ourselves morally. We do the right thing. We say the right thing. Uh, With difficult behaviors, like sacrificial giving or serving or evangelism, we use some pretty powerful motivators, like uh, guilt and fear, right? It's a simple matter of obedience. You want to obey God, don't you? Uh, Don't you care that other people are suffering? What kind of a human are you? (laughs) Or if you don't give, 
God's work is hindered, it might even collapse. Um, If you don't share the gospel with people, they're going to go to hell, and God might hold you accountable, too, if you didn't share the gospel when you were supposed to. Um, Or maybe more positively, the more faithful you are, the more harvest you bring in, the more likely you'll be to hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Otherwise, you probably just expect to, meh, come on in, uh, when you get to heaven, right? Um, Evangelism might be one of the most difficult things for Christians to do uh, because we perceive so much relational risk in it. Uh, What are these people going to think of me if I open my mouth and start talking like a Christian, right? Uh, Are they going to be my friend anymore? Um, many places of the world, the risk isn't only relational. There's actually uh, a real physical danger associated with proclaiming the gospel. So we've got to employ some pretty strong incentives to do evangelism. Um, now, we're Reformed Presbyterians, which means um, most of us have a pulse, uh, but we're fairly passionless, right? We're not moved by many things. Actually, we're quite suspicious of Uh, emotional manipulation. We're not going to fall for those guilt and fear tactics. Um, We prefer a good, solid, biblical, intellectual argument. In fact, we just like arguments. Our tradition tends to attract people who think highly of their skills as thinkers or debaters. So if we've ever moved to evangelism, it's often because uh, we view that as an opportunity to prove ourselves right in contrast with somebody else who is wrong, obviously. There's a horrible motive for doing evangelism or apologetics. Uh, I'm going to share the love of Christ with you so I can feel good about winning an extremely significant argument. Um, So biblically speaking, on the other hand, there are a few good motives that can drive our evangelism. On a pretty basic level, there's a Christian's genuine desire to obey God, right? Jesus tells us, go and make disciples, and we're generally stimulated to respond to our Lord's command um, with obedience. Better, perhaps, is uh, when we actually feel compassion for the lost, when our hearts can uh, actually sympathize with their state of uh, hopeless rebellion, with their state of uh, alienation from God their distance from God, and we really want to see them reconciled to God through Christ, right? Um, When we love our neighbors as ourselves, when we can relate to them, when we see ourselves in them, when we hope the best for them, and then share the love of Christ from that motive, that's pretty good. But believe it or not, there is a better and higher motivation still, and we see it in our text. So verse... 16, while Paul was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy, the rest of his missionary team, to show up in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with the Athenians. He tried to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. Paul saw that the city of Athens was uh, submerged in its idols. It was swamped. It was oppressed by the sheer number of idols. In ancient Athens, idols were easy to visually identify. Um, 
They looked like pieces of wood or stone or metal that had been carved to represent and um, resemble deities. Uh, in our culture, idols are usually more abstract than this. They may be a bit more difficult to identify, but they serve the same function. They serve the same function in our lives. John Stott wrote this, An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place of God is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth and power, sex, food, alcohol and other drugs, parents, spouse, children and friends, work, recreation, television, possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. So like we talked about last week, uh, we're all born worshipers, right? We were originally created to worship God, to find our security and significance and identity and fulfillment in Him, but we've rejected Him, and we've replaced Him with a host of other things. John Calvin wrote that the heart is an idol factory. We're constantly cranking out other things to worship and devote ourselves to besides the one true God. You have idols. Whether you're a Christian or a Druid or a Muslim or a superstitious ancient Greek or an avowed atheist, you have idols. You have false gods. You have things in your life other than God himself that you look to in order to derive ultimate meaning and value and joy. Tim Keller wrote a book about this called uh, Counterfeit Gods. And he says this, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. So this whole world is full of idols of our own making, even if we don't see the, the shrines and the statuettes and the incense and all that. Paul saw that Athens was swamped with idols, and it provoked him. It provoked him, and so he did evangelism. Paul was provoked to jealousy for God's glory. The same word there uh, for provoked in the Greek is, is used frequently in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, which was available to them back then. Um, the same word for provoked is used to describe God's own response to idols. For example, we read in our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah uh, chapter 8, verse 19, God says, Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign gods? Carved images, foreign idols, false gods, these are in direct competition for God's glory. We glorify whatever it is that we look to in our dependence, in our need, in our desire. If we think some petty deity sends the rain for our crops, then we sing and dance and pray and give thanks to that deity. Or if we look to our retirement funds for our security, then we devote ourselves to them. We make sacrifices for them. We trust in them. We boast about them. And we desperately fear losing them. We look to romantic relationships to give us 
the deepest joy. We looked to our work or to our religious activity for our ultimate purpose. We looked to beauty or fame for some sense of significance. We looked to our politicians for hope for the world. And when we do any of these things, we displace the one true God. We rob him of the glory that he alone deserves as the one who made us and who loves us, who provides for all of our needs. And the Bible says that this provokes God to jealousy. Provokes him to jealousy. A lot of times we think of jealousy as a petty emotion. Right. Um, but that's not the way that the Bible talks about it. John Stott again says this about jealousy. Jealousy is the resentment of rivals. And whether it is good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains, or sport is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas. If, on the other hand, a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. It is the same with God who says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I do not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Our creator and redeemer has a right to our exclusive allegiance and is jealous if we transfer it to anyone or anything else. Um, it says in Exodus chapter 34, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God's name is Jealous because he alone is God. He alone is worthy of our worship, and he is a good God who has favored us and loved us. The Bible frequently likens God to a faithful husband and his people to an adulterous wife chasing after false gods for their pleasures. For their needs. And that provokes him to a righteous jealousy, a righteous indignation. And Paul shares God's sentiment. Right? By perceiving the idolatry of Athens, he is similarly moved to jealousy for God's glory. He, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he laid into them, didn't he? No. He shared the gospel with them in the hope that they'd repent and believe, in the hope that they'd turn from their idols to the one true God through Jesus Christ. His zeal for God's glory didn't express itself in moral superiority, didn't express itself in angry, harsh, condemning words. He saw that God was being cheated on. God was being made a cuckold. And it moved him to evangelism. Paul's God-centeredness, his desire to glorify the God who was being dishonored by idolatry is what moved him to evangelism. Yes, he had some strong words for the Athenians, but he held out the free offer of the gospel for them, for their faith, that they should trust in Christ, that they should be spared from God's righteous wrath and be brought into a relationship of eternal love with God. Paul was simultaneously compelled by these two things. He had his, this righteous indignation and jealousy, and at the same time, this powerful, compassionate, gracious instinct. And these moved him to share the gospel. 
with the Athenians. And we look at those two things together, jealousy and compassion, and we scratch our heads and wonder if maybe Paul was a bit schizophrenic. How do you hold those two things together? But Jesus held those two things together perfectly. He wept for the people of Jerusalem, for the love that they could have had. He pleaded with them to turn to God, and he tore through the temple furious at their rebellion against God. Jesus wasn't schizophrenic. He was perfectly zealous for God's glory, for God's glory as a lover scorned. Jesus' highest aim was to honor his heavenly Father, who is the source of every good and perfect gift, the eternal fountain of love and life. Jesus was more God-centered than any person who has ever lived. His desire to glorify the God who is being dishonored by idolatry led him not to destroy the world in anger. It led him to lay down his life, to set everything right to reconcile sinners to a holy God. He died to satisfy God's righteous jealousy as he paid the price that our idolatry deserves on the cross. And he died to extend infinite mercy and grace to idolaters. The ultimate God-glorifying act, Jesus' death on the cross, perfectly united justice and love, right? jealousy and compassion. And at the cross, we have the ultimate display of who God is, the God whose name is Jealous, and the God who is Love. As we seek to glorify God our Savior, as we grow in his image and become more like Christ our Savior, then jealousy and compassion can also be united in us. As we become more like Jesus, who perfectly glorifies God, will be moved to, to anger at the thought of God being dishonored. And at the same time, moved to pity and sympathy and love for idolaters. Moved to share the gospel with people who scorn God's love. And all of this comes together when God's glory is your highest aim, your ultimate motivation for doing evangelism. <clears throat> now, a lot of times... Christians talk about, um, about wanting to glorify God, right? But they get really mean with their evangelism. Or they grow so cold that they stop caring altogether about doing evangelism. And this is especially true, I think, in Reformed churches, where people like to argue about doctrine and set themselves in opposition to people with differing worldviews. It's like we've got on our, our kilts and our blue face paint and our swords and our battle cry is soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory as we go hack our enemies to pieces for their idolatry. Right? We excuse that meanness by saying we're zealous for God's glory. But I think it's more likely that we're zealous for our own glory to prove that uh, just we're more right than others. We're not idolaters like them. I remember uh, last week when I was telling you about the guy who was selling some fancy clothes to my friend in the upscale uh, department store. He thought that we would resonate to his particular idolatry. Um, that you set yourself apart. 
by wearing exclusive clothes, designer clothes, that your image or your identity is tied to the price or quality of your apparel. And, um, and there I was, a, a Presbyterian minister, professional gospel preacher, uh, the glory of God, my chief purpose in life, and the first thing I did when my friend and I left the store was to snicker at that guy's blatant idolatry. What an idiot. He's given his life to the material that's hanging off his body. What an idiot. I still have a hard time mustering up any pity for that guy. Uh, because I'm really not all that concerned with God's glory. I just like to feel better than other idolaters. If I had actually gotten up the guts to share the gospel with that guy, it probably would have been primarily to put my own discernment on display, to feel good about my own ability to expose his stupid idolatry rather than being motivated by God's glory, which leads to jealousy and compassion in our evangelism. It's one thing to say you want to glorify God in everything you do, And it's another thing to actually want to glorify God. To truly be provoked to jealousy for his honor while still remaining loving and kind, hoping that the gospel of grace will transform other idolaters. And we need to grow in a true passion for God's glory in a way that moves us to be gracious in our evangelism. We need to have a God-centered vision of evangelism that transforms our hearts to be more like Jesus who laid down his life for his enemies and that motivates our obedience to the Great Commission. You need to be captured by his excellencies, enthralled by his goodness to you in Jesus. And that comes as you understand that you could never deserve his love, that you've tried as hard as anyone to cheat on God with your idols. You really do give yourself away to idols for security or for pleasure, just like the most conspicuous pagans who ever lived. And God has every right to do what any betrayed lover wants to do and just blow up the whole universe in his holy jealousy. But instead, he gives you the security you need. And he makes you good promises of eternal life that are bought by the blood of his own son. You long for fulfillment? You're going to be made new and immortal and perfectly able to enjoy every good thing forever with thanksgiving. You want a sense of belonging? In Christ, your brothers and sisters are the sons and daughters of God. You want to be significant? As co-heir with Christ, all things are yours, and you will rule with him in heaven, and you will judge angels. You want beauty? You want identity? You want love? You're made to find these things in the one true God. And even though you've pursued them in false gods, he has been patient with you and kind and forgiving, and he has pursued you with his love. And that's the gospel. God gives you life and love freely as a gift of his grace through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does he deserve your worship? Does the glory of his grace capture you? When your heart says yes to that, then you've tasted the ultimate motivation to evangelism.
the God who pursues you with his love is certainly worth having conversations about. Right? So let's pray. Lord, so often I feel like I'm going through the motions, just doing my duty, and I know that I'm driven by all kinds of um, false motives to do the Christian things that I do, even evangelism, even talking about you and your grace and your love, and your sacrifice for us and your salvation. We pray that you would strike away the false gods from our hearts, that you would set our eyes on you, that you would fix our attention on you in a way that we would truly become God-centered, that we would truly be concerned for your glory above all things. And not your glory as a, a mean, destructive God, but as a, a patient, kind, forgiving, merciful God who is righteous and who will punish sins, yet for thousands of years has been patient to our entire race in the hope that uh, people would be saved and turn to you and turn away from their idols. We pray that you would uh, embed your gospel deeper into our hearts and make us truly respond uh, with faith and with love for your glory as we uh, go out into this world and talk to people about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.